Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Liam Hoare is the Europe editor for Moment magazine and has been covering labor's anti-Semitism scandal since 2015. He joins us now to help us understand what's next for that party, for British Jews, and for the United Kingdom. Liam, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for inviting me. For the most part, analysts are chalking up Labour's defeat to having the wrong message on Brexit. But there is no doubt that Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, was historically unpopular. And no doubt that a part of that unpopularity was due to the anti-Semitism that he let grow in the party. Are there grumblings on the far left that Jews are responsible for his defeat? And is that something that British Jews are worrying about? I think what we've seen since the election is people on the far left at Labour constituency meetings and online asserting that British Jewish institutions such as the Board of Deputies or indeed the Chief Rabbi um, were in fact Tories or Conservatives, I should say, Mm. and were uh, in a sense intervening in the election on their side. That's certainly one of the things that the Board of Deputies hope that the future Labour leader will expunge from the party. And uh, that is one reason why they've come forward with these uh, 10 pledges in recent days. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the list of 10 pledges that the Board of Deputies, the kind of umbrella organization for British Jews, that the Board of Deputies released just a couple of days ago. They basically say that, you know, these are the 10 things or perhaps the first 10 things that the Labour Party needs to adopt, needs to do in order to heal its relationship with the Jewish community. We don't need to go through them one by one, but broadly, what are these 10 pledges calling for? Well, as you say, broadly, the first thing is that um, outstanding cases of anti-Semitism in the party need to be resolved. And the disciplinary process there, too, has to be made independent again and and interference from the leadership team sort of around Jeremy Corbyn in this process must come to an end. Um, Thereafter, I think what's important for the the board is to reestablish a working relationship with the leader of the Labour Party. After all, one of their functions is to be a conduit between the panoply of organizations they represent and the government, uh, foreign bodies, and so forth. And finally, just to add that one of the things they want to see done is that the full IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, with all of its examples and clauses, will be sort of introduced and used in disciplinary cases within the Labour Party. That was a major area of dispute within the party last year or earlier this year, and that's one of the things they want to see get done. Here at AJC, we're very proud of having been a part of authoring the IRA definition. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with the definition and why it's so important, can you just say a word about that? Well, the cause of dispute within the party, I should say, to make it more specific, is that um, people on the far left of the party were concerned that this definition would prevent them from um, criticizing Israel or Israeli policy, which, of course, is not true. What the definition does is indicate ways in which uh, rhetoric concerning um, Israel can tip over into anti-Semitism. I believe, for example, if um, people were to say 
that the actions of the Israeli government uh, towards the Palestinians in some way resemble the actions of um, Nazis towards Jews in Europe in the 1940s. Um, so really, they had nothing to worry about, but this all ties into a much larger argument that was rumbling on throughout the entirety of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party concerning anti-Israel uh, rhetoric and and. and when that becomes anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Or, for example, if someone challenging British Jews were to somehow hold them accountable for the actions of the Israeli government, I think that would also be seen as anti-Semitic under the IRA definition, which is really important considering the way that often we've seen across Europe and perhaps in Britain specifically, people try to do that, try to discredit Jews. I think there's a slur that has cropped up in the UK, Zios, people who, you know, they're interested in defaming and demeaning, they don't really have any way to do it except to try to tie them to Israel. So I think it's important that the Labour Party adopt the definition in order to make very clear to its constituents that that kind of thing is anti-Semitic, right? Well, quite. And in, in recent days, we have an example of that, which is that um, there's an sort of, I would say, online activist uh, by the name of Rachel Cousins, who goes by the alias Rachel Swindon, who has uh, a following of tens of thousands of people on Twitter. It's unclear whether she is or is not, in fact, a member of the party, but she is nonetheless very close to the sort of Corbyn leadership. And in response to the board's pledges, she tweeted that, as I previously said, that the board was essentially a, a conservative organization and also came up with her own or, or perhaps found her own list of pledges for the board, which more or less argue that the board have to come out and condemn Israeli military action in the West Bank or condemn what she calls the ethnic cleansing of Palestinian communities in, in the West Bank. In other words, as you said, holding British Jews accountable for the actions of the Israeli government, which is a, at the very least, a dangerous road to go down. And she's somebody who has previous form in this regard, having tweeted about the Rothschilds and their so-called influence in the past. So the point of this is to say that changing the leader of the Labour Party is only the first step in what will be a root and branch task to eradicate anti-Semitism from the party. It is always interesting to see how those people who take part in you know, what is sometimes called the new anti-Semitism, this kind of attacking Jews on the basis of what Israel does, how at the end of the day, they are also just old anti-Semites in the way that she you know, brings up Rothschild conspiracies and things like that. I wanted to ask you about one of the pledges in particular. Number eight is entitled Engagement with the Jewish community to be made via its main representative groups. And then it explains labor must engage with the Jewish community via its main representative groups and not through fringe organizations and individuals. That sounds like it's referencing something, like there's some history there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is somebody who was, throughout the time he was leader of the party, never very much interested in the views and concerns of mainstream British Jewish organizations. He has historically been and, and was to the time that he was leader, always much more comfortable with what the board calls fringe organizations. For example, uh, he wasn't much interested in uh, the Jewish labor movement, which is sort of the mainstream representative organization of Jews in the Labour Party or affiliated with the party, but rather Jewish Voice for Labour, whose membership I think could fit into a phone box. I mean, if you look <laughs> at their rallies, their meetings, their letters in the Guardian newspaper, it's always the same 10, 15, 20 people who are signing these letters. Um, at the same time, um, at one of the times when the relationship between Jeremy Corbyn and British Jewish groups was, was at its lowest, 
he attended a Seder organized by a group called Judas, who are a legitimate tendency in the Jewish community and represent people who have felt themselves felt disaffiliated or pushed away from the mainstream, politically left-inclined. But they themselves, I'm sure, would say they represent also a, a very small number of people. Um, also, Jeremy's always a bit affiliated with sort of anti-Zionist uh, ultra-Orthodox people who live in his community. But he did not have a working relationship with the board. He did not have a working relationship with the chief rabbi insofar as I know. And neither did he have a working relationship with the Jewish Leadership Council, which sort of is a, you might say, a rival organization to the Board of Deputies, also a representative group. So this point eight, this engagement group, is really about the board wanting to reestablish a line of communication and a working relationship with the Labour Party, which, as I say, is sort of one of the sort of raison d'etre for, for the board itself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move on in just a moment to kind of forward-looking questions, but there is one more retrospective thing that I'm curious about, which is what are we to make of people who are real friends of the Jews, or certainly seem to be, who campaigned for labor in this last election? I'm thinking of people, for example, like London Mayor Sadiq Khan, who has said all of the right things about anti-Semitism, done many of the right things about anti-Semitism, but nevertheless tried to make Jeremy Corbyn the next prime minister. Should we hold that against him? I, In the case of someone like Sadiq Khan, no, we should not hold that against him. And I think, I think you know, people who were in that kind of position, which is to say supporters of the Labour Party, but not supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, were very torn because the reality is of the British electoral system, that much like the American system, it, it ends up becoming a two-party system. Um, Elections to the House of Parliament more or less function like elections to the House of Representatives. There are 650 constituencies. Each constituency becomes its own kind of two-horse race. And in many of them, the race is between Labour and the Conservatives. And so sort of, I would say, anti-Semitic Labour supporters found themselves in a very unenvious position of having to decide, do I vote for the Conservatives and put into power a party that I have opposed my entire adult life, likely? Or do I grit my teeth and vote for the Labour Party on the basis that I am somehow voting for the party and I'm voting for the candidate in my constituency, but somehow not Jeremy Corbyn? And I, you know, as a journalist, I'm above the fray in this regard, so I don't have to make such uh, compromises. But I, I nonetheless feel for people who... You know, people like Sadiq Khan, or you could add to this list people like Jess Phillips, who is now a candidate for leadership, who has spoken out about anti-Semitism in the past, um, about the kind of, as I say, compromises they had to make at that time. So no, we 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 shouldn't hold that against them, no. Mm-hmm. As you intimate, in about a month, the voting will begin to elect a new leader of labor. This is kind of an interesting quirk for our American listeners. The voting will actually stay open for more than a month through the beginning of April, and people can vote, I guess, any time in that span. Who are the names uh, that we need to know who are likely to win the election? And are any of them going to be, you know, kind of on their own, the answer to labor's anti-Semitism problem? Tackling the anti-Semitism crisis is not as simple as, for lack of a better way of putting it, removing the head from the snake. Um, having Jeremy Corbyn leave is certainly a good thing because the cause of the crisis could not be its uh, solution. Um, but in terms of who will become the next leader, um, 
there are at this present time probably two main candidates. On the one hand, you have uh, Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, who is perceived to be the continuity Corbyn candidate, not in the sense that she's uh, um, affiliated with his particular brand of anti-Semitic politics, but in the sense that she is um, close to the pro-Corbyn wing of the party. The people who were close to Corbyn are also sort of supporting her. And um, it looks as if that she also will have the support of a group called Momentum, which is a kind of party within a party that um, supported Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I think the concern about her, and it's interesting that when the board released their pledges, they also talked about how there were candidates who, in a certain sense, talked out both sides of their mouth and tailored their message, depending on which part of the party they were talking to, is that Long Bailey has said that when she was in the sort of inner circle, if you like, that she privately spoke out against anti-Semitism in the party and saying the party wasn't doing enough. Other members who were in those same meetings of her have, let's say, disputed her account. Hmm. And it also seems as if she was at some point against the uh, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Um, on the other hand, you have Sergei Starmer, who has been a MP since 2015. He was the shadow Brexit secretary and is um, a sort of widely respected figure within the party, um, which seemed to be trying to be all things to all people in a certain sense. and he would certainly be one of the people, well, I would, I would say that the board of deputies will be happy to work with any of these people, but I think the board may be more uh, reassured that the struggle against anti-Semitism would be taken more seriously if someone like Kia Starmer, who is perhaps seen as more of a consensus candidate uh, with broader support, um, would uh, become leader. But the outcome of the election at this stage remains uncertain in the sense that polling is very contradictory. Mm -hmm. And just so our listeners understand, when you say that Starmer is the shadow Brexit secretary, because that's not something that we really have in an American political context, I think that means basically that though labor is not in power, there's a whole cabinet, a shadow cabinet made up of labor leaders, and they kind of invite the voters to imagine like, hey, you don't like what the current Brexit secretary is doing or the current home secretary is doing or the current foreign secretary is doing. Imagine if this person were in that role right now and think about how we would be running that ministry. Is that basically right? Exactly. And the purpose of the sort of the shadow cabinet is in a sense that um, to prepare for government, because the transition in Britain is, is instantaneous from one government to the next, unlike in the United States where there's this month and a half of sort of interregnum, um, they have to be ready on day one to introduce their panoply of, of policies. Also, um, the shadow secretary in any relevant position will, in the form of kind of prime minister's questions, go up against their counterpart in parliament, sort of go back and forth about whether it be Brexit or energy policy or foreign policy. Uh -huh. So let me just close with one final question here. It's impossible not to ask about Brexit. Is it a done deal at this point? It seems like it's a done deal at this point. And if yes, what is that going to mean for the U.S.-Britain relationship? Well, I think you can't have one referendum followed by two general elections, all of which gave the same result, and then and continue to ignore sort of the will of the voters. So Brexit at this point, um, at least the actual act of leaving on January 31st is a fait accompli. Um, what happens next, and this is where the relationship with the U.S. sort of comes in, that's all up in the air. Um, 
the Conservative government would seem to want a looser arrangement with Europe to be outside of the European customs arrangement, which would mean that the uh, British government can pursue a free trade agreement with the United States, which um, Donald Trump has said that he is interested in. Um, the problem I think the British government and that the US government will then find is that many of the things that the United States would want from a free trade agreement, which would include the export of American agricultural products to Britain and perhaps an American role, a greater American role in the British healthcare industry, will be unpalatable to uh, British voters. And I would assume, therefore, that that will be a cause of conflict in the years to come if it is indeed the case that Britain, after the end of this year, has a looser arrangement with Europe than it does now. Well, Liam, I know that you've been tracking these issues for a long time. Thank you for sharing your hard-won expertise with us on People of the Pod. No, my pleasure, and thank you again. Last month, the International Criminal Court announced it would launch an investigation of alleged war crimes by Hamas and Palestinian armed groups, as well as by Israel. Included on the list of alleged crimes committed by Israel, the construction of settlements in the West Bank. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said the ICC probe would not deter him from further expanding Israel's presence in the West Bank, adding that no one, no Israelis, no Palestinians, would be uprooted from their homes. The long-awaited ICC announcement followed a five-year preliminary review of allegations on both sides. Here to talk about what the latest development means is Raphael Aron, the diplomatic correspondent for the Times of Israel. Raphael, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Pleasure being with you again. So now you just had a very extensive interview with the prosecutor in this case, and I would love to talk to you a little bit about that. But also, please forgive me. I'm not sure what changed on December 20th when the ICC prosecutor made this announcement. Wasn't she always pledging to seek accountability on both sides of the conflict? Was was this basically her just saying, I'm not pulling the plug? Or, or yeah, what, what changed? No, she actually made the decision to um, go to the next level. The ICC has, by and large, three stages of probes. It starts with the preliminary examination, which is the period that you refer to. It took five years for her to do that. And she's basically gathering information, but she's um, only um, speaking to officials. She's inviting witnesses, but it's it's all basically on the public domain. And the Israelis were hoping that she would decide that, okay, she doesn't have enough to open an actual investigation. Now, what she said on December 20th is that she intends to open a criminal investigation, but she's not exactly doing that right now because she's not convinced that the court actually has jurisdiction to get involved. And she said, before I start an investigation and we start a lengthy and costly process, and then it will be shut down because um, somebody will find that we don't have jurisdiction. Before I even start, I'm going to ask a pretrial chamber of the court itself. Uh, The court has um, the prosecutor's office, These are the ones who do the investigation. And then it has also a pretrial chamber. These are three judges, and they will decide to what extent the court has jurisdiction over the so-called situation in Palestine. Only when they say, yes, you do have jurisdiction, then she will go ahead and open an actual criminal investigation. And that is actually quite dramatic because that's a criminal process. That means that the ICC could theoretically start issuing arrest warrants against uh, suspects without them even knowing about it. 
Um, so many Israelis will think twice before they travel to countries um, that are members of the ICC. Okay. So now, um, what would give the ICC jurisdiction here? Well, so that's the big argument right now. The Israeli um, government is arguing that the court has no jurisdiction whatsoever. So let's take a step back. Israel is not a member of the court, and therefore um, the court has absolutely no jurisdiction over Israel. Now, Palestine um, in 2015 became a member of the ICC by acceding to the Rome Statute. The Rome Statute is sort of the foundational document of the court, um, and once the Palestinians were given non-member state status by the UN General Assembly, they could theoretically um, accede to the Rome Statute and become a member of the court. In 2015, mm-hmm. frustrated over the lack of process in the peace uh, of progress in the peace process, they took that step uh, and started right away asking for the prosecutor to start prosecuting um, Israeli alleged war crimes. So um, the Israelis are saying, well, but there's still, you know, there's no such thing as the state of Palestine. They should have never acceded to the Rome Statute. Certainly they are not sovereign over the territory that they claim for their state. And you can only transfer to the court criminal jurisdiction over your territory if you actually have sovereignty over that territory, which Israel argues they don't. Now, Fatou Ben Souda, the, the prosecutor, she argues that it doesn't matter whether Palestine is a state or not, um, for the purposes of the Rome Statute, it is, because it was allowed to accede to the Rome Statute and formally become a member of the court. And as she told me in the interview, it is strange that um, we admitted Palestine as a member, but then Palestine cannot do what this court was meant to do, which is, you know, um, (laughs) prosecute uh, and look into war crimes committed on on these territories. Mm-hmm. But now Israel is investigating its own IDF forces for wrongdoing during the Gaza conflict, right? Yes. Um, and even here you could argue, and, and again, um, the prosecutor hasn't uh, made a decision yet. She thinks just that um, war crimes may be committed, mm-hmm. and whether Israel sufficiently investigates itself uh, will have to be determined in the investigation. Now, you can argue that Israel is not doing it well enough, and let me just say uh, very briefly, I know we have a lot to discuss in very little time, but one of the uh, alleged war crimes Israel is accused of committing is building settlements. And building settlements is, as you yourself said, right now government policy. Mm-hmm. So uh, Israel cannot argue, but we're investigating ourselves for committing that war crime. We are, you know, is- the Israeli government actually takes pride in expanding settlements. Right. So in other words, they're certainly not going to investigate that as a crime, but just the wrongdoing that might have been committed during the Gaza conflict. That's the war crime that they would be investigating. What about Hamas? Are they able to or have they already begun investigating the allegations against them? No, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, Absurdly, you know, Hamas takes pride in committing these war crimes. uh, And uh, the ICC prosecutor actually mentioned that in a 112-page declaration uh, that she issued on December 20th. Um, While Israel um, does have some kind of mechanism to investigate its own wrongdoing, Hamas doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, And therefore, it's going to be much easier um, to make a case that Hamas commits war crimes. She acknowledges that. And Hamas clearly uh, takes pride in attacking civilians. That's their raison d'etre, if you will. Got it. Okay, so let's back up here. There are 120 member states in the ICC. The United States is not one of them, nor is Israel, which you mentioned earlier. 
Why not? Why are these countries not members of the ICC? How did this all begin? Well, Israel was actually involved in the early discussions about the founding um, of the ICC. Israel still is in favor of an international jurisdiction uh, and of the fact that there should be an international um, global institution uh, fighting uh, against um, uh, war crimes and, and mass atrocities. However, it was very clear um, early on to the Israeli government that this institution in The Hague is going to be politically biased. And that's why the Americans, and by the way, many other countries uh, here in the region, Turkey and of course all the Arab states in Iran, um, none of the states here in the region um, joined the court, clear, clearly because they fear that it, you know, it's going to turn against them at some point. Um, which is kind of an inherent uh, irony in the court, that the court can only investigate countries that have themselves joined the court. And the real evildoers like Venezuela and Iran and many other countries, Cuba, for example, that uh, are in actual need of, uh, of war crime investigations, they can't be touched because they you know, never joined the court. Yeah, so the way that it works in most cases is that, uh, that uh, sort of African leaders um, can um, say, well, you know, I'm African country X and the guy before me, he committed war crimes. So why don't you investigate him? Uh, because we joined the uh, we joined the court and we are now okay, but the guys before us they were really uh, evil dictators. That's most of the cases um, that the court has looked into it. We, you have, um, uh, for example, Afghanistan. Um, uh, it, there's right now a prelim preliminary investigation going on against UK and American soldiers mm. who allegedly committed crimes against uh, local populations in Afghanistan. Um, but it doesn't seem that this is going to go anywhere. Um, again, uh, the Americans are, have threatened the ICC with consequences, and it seems that the ICC is backing down from, from this whole process. Um, so right now the focus is really on African countries and, alas, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So who has the ICC accused or tried or even convicted in recent years? Actually, it doesn't have much... Um, uh, success, I have to say. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. Um, it's public knowledge. I think uh, in the last couple of years, there was only one, indi one indictment. One has to understand the ICC is, um, is really a rather toothless tiger. It uh, creates a lot of interest and war crime accusations sound bombastic, uh, but they don't really have a mechanism to get people. Even if somebody's uh, uh, accused of war crimes, they can only put you in the dock if they get a hand on, on you <clears throat> and somebody can just leave to a country that is <clears throat> not going to cooperate with the court and then that person will never will never see a courtroom from the inside. So uh, that's mm. part of the ICC's okay. bad reputation that um, they do a lot of investigation, they do a lot of uh, finger pointing and accusations, but they actually bring very, very few evil men and women to justice. Okay. So if this toothless tiger does find that uh, a reason to proceed or finds one or both of these parties guilty of war crimes, what could happen? And what are the chances of a ruling before the next election? The next uh, Israeli election, you mean? The next Israeli election, yes. Or, well, I guess the next American election, too. <laughs> well, let me tell you, absolutely zero. Um, the, preliminary the preliminary investigation took five years. 
Right now, we're still in the uh, the phase where the court has to figure out whether it's going to start an investigation. Now, the investigation could take many long years as well. As I said, it's a criminal trial. She has to reinvestigate everything from scratch. She has to invite witnesses. She can no longer rely on publicly available information. She actually has to do a criminal trial, a bit like in Law and Order, and like really establish facts. Uh, that's going to mm-hmm. likely take years. She will not even be in office. It will be an, a different a prosecutor, and this can be expected if it ever happens to take years, if not decades. Mm. Uh, and this is only the investigation. Now, I, if the investigation is concluded um, and they decide to proceed with the trial, then you have the actual trial. And again, the trial will only take place if the accused alleged perpetrators of crimes show up in court. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say General of the IDF. Moshe X is being accused of war crimes. Well, he just doesn't show up, and then nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. Okay. Well, I know you will continue to follow this, and we will continue to follow your coverage. Raphael, thank you so much for uh, shedding some light on it. Thank you for having me. Bishop Ken Ulmer has served as senior pastor of Faithful Central Bible Church in Los Angeles for more than three decades. But five years ago, the evangelical pastor had a terrifying experience in Tel Aviv that led him down an unexpected path. Astounded by the Israelis' ability to resume their daily life after repeated rocket attacks, he connected with the chief medical officer of the Israeli Defense Force and discovered a toolbox he believed would help his community heal. He launched the Ulmer Institute to create a culture of resilience, similar to the one he saw in Israel, to help the city's young witnesses cope with what they saw around them and stem the cycle of violence. But the violence isn't limited to Los Angeles, nor is it limited to guns and gangs. Bishop Ulmer is particularly troubled by the recent anti-Semitic attacks in New York and New Jersey committed by African Americans. On Sunday, Bishop Ulmer has invited the Jewish community to join his congregation for a solidarity service. We invited him to talk to us about what he has learned from Israel and how he thinks the recent uptick of crimes against the Jewish community should be addressed. Bishop Ulmer, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be with you. So, so Bishop, please tell us about the Ulmer Institute, how it came about, uh, what inspired its methodology. The Ulmer Institute is about three, four years old, going into our fourth year now, actually leading toward our fifth. But it was born out of a trip that I took one of several, uh, to Israel, but also born out of a passion that I have that I believe is shared with different communities in our society today. My life was changed by two trips that I took several years ago, matter of fact, a couple decades ago. The first time I went to South Africa was the week, two months after Dr. Mandela was released from prison. And I felt like that was my reconnection with my ethnic roots. And then I took my first trip to Israel And that trip was, for me, a reconnection with my spiritual roots. I'm a Christian pastor full-time, and that's what I do. But it was that trip that made my connection with Israel and the people of Israel, it just made it come alive. Mm. I took a class at Hebrew Union College, and a friend of mine, my professor became a friend. His name was Dr. Mike Signer, and he taught a class on Judaism and Christian beginnings. And again, that just knit my mind, my heart to the very foundation of who I am. And so one trip that I took to Israel was sponsored by APAC. And that trip, we did various sites in Israel, et cetera. And we stopped at a ministry, we call it a ministry, that treats trauma. And I was just amazed by 
the testimonies that came from a man and a woman who said their lives were changed because of the treatments and trauma that they had experienced. One man was formerly in the Army and talked about how he came out of the Army with PTSD and uh, he lost his home, he lost his wife, he almost lost his life. He was put in a psych ward and nobody understood the trauma that he was going through by being a former member of the Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I met a lady likewise who talked about the bombings that, had, that she had experienced and how relatives had been in or near some of the bombings and just how it had changed her life. And so this agency was trying to treat it. And I'm saying, you know, I live in this every day. I mean, the people that I stand before, you know, a couple thousand people every week, many of them come from neighborhoods and communities where they live with that kind of impending trauma every day. Yes. And so I went back and I said, you know, some kind of way I've got to clone this or duplicate it or something and bring this back to America, especially back to Los Angeles. I went back again, and on this trip, I was there when a bomb went off. Mm. And uh, we were coming from dinner and walking down the streets of Tel Aviv, and literally a bomb went off. I, I thought it was uh, you know, a cloudburst or something. And people began to run, and they came off the beach, and they came out of the restaurants, and they came out of the cars. They left taxis in the middle of the street, and the sirens were going, sirens were going, sirens, sirens, sirens. And maybe 10 minutes or so later, the sirens stopped. And people came back to their martinis and back to the dinner counter and back to the beach and like nothing had ever happened. Wow. And I was saying, my gosh, how do these people live in this every day? <laughs> There's something, is it in the water they drink or what? There's this kind of resilience that deals with this impending trauma on a daily basis. And I'm saying, whatever this is, I need to take it back to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So that was really the experience that birthed the Elmer Institute. Later, I met Dr. E.R. Fruchter, who was formerly the chief medical officer for the Army, the Israeli Army, mm-hmm. who was here on a lecture tour at USC in Los Angeles, and I met him at the Israeli consulate. David Siegel, a dear friend of mine, was at that time the consulate here in Los Angeles, and I met a Dr. Fruchter there. And he and I began to talk, 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 and I discovered that he had literally created a method of training soldiers. He's retired now, but I'm going to guess easily over half of the soldiers in the Army like today have had his training in what we coined as pre-TSD. Everyone knows P as in post-TSD, but he has a technique that trained soldiers as how to anticipate, how to process, and how to survive, if you will, impending trauma and even be equipped to train and to help other men who, in that case, would have been in the foxhole with them. In other words, a technique to brace themselves. To brace themselves, to mm-hmm. prepare themselves, to be prepared for whenever and if ever that happens. Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, I said, how do we take this military model and bring it to Los Angeles to an urban model? Mm-hmm. So from there, Dr. Fruit and I became partners, and we flew a team from Tel Aviv over to Los Angeles. And I had a team of psychologists, I had social workers, I had educators. And over several days, we literally morphed that process into what eventually became the Elmer Institute. And so we train in those techniques, basically high school students. We've done almost 1,000 high school students here in Southern California. Wow. We're in the Compton School District. Many people know about Compton now from the movie Straight Outta Compton. Mm-hmm. Well, we're in the Compton School District right now going back this semester in training students. Wow. And young people in, in this kind of preparation. There was a young lady at Inglewood High School who took our course maybe like Tuesday or Wednesday of the week. And we have her on tape saying this. That following Saturday, she saw literally a drive-by shooting and saw her friend shot in the head right in front of her. Oh. And so these three or four girls who, who, who were experiencing this trauma, obviously, 
she says that what she learned from our techniques not only helped her come through it, but helped her bring a friend of her through it. That's the kind of things that we're doing. Probably the most exciting thing most recently is we are now partnering with ITC, the Israeli Trauma Coalition, led by my dear friend, Dr. Tally Lebanon, and we're going to train trainers. Okay. Matter of fact, they'll be coming to Los Angeles next month, a team from Tel Aviv. And we're partnering, and again, how can we translate the kinds of preparation, the kind of resilience, the kind of culture? And it was from her that I've learned that not only do we prepare people in anticipation of a trauma, but how do we create a culture of resilience? Mm-hmm. And that's what I see in Israel. That's what I see all over Israel. It's a culture. It's like in the air they breathe or something. There's something that they do that prepares the community, that prepares the neighborhoods, that prepares families. And to how do you deal with these traumas even after they've occurred? And so next month, we're bringing a team over. I'm in the process of doing it right now, preparing for them, coming from Tel Aviv. And we're now going to put the front end and the back end together. We're already doing Mm pre-TSD. They specialize in a post-TSD culture. They do what we don't do. We do what they don't do. Mm -hmm. And so we're putting those two together now in what I think will be a very innovative approach to treating trauma and creating communities of resilience. And it sounds like you're starting there in California. Do you have your sights set on expanding this nationally if it's a success there on the West Coast? Even as we speak, uh, Mm -hmm. we're in dialogue with uh, the school district leaders in Birmingham, Alabama, and with some community leaders in St. Louis, Missouri. And so just what you said, we're going to roll it out point by point, city by city, but we're starting here at home. You know, I learned that there's a passage in the Christian Bible where Jesus says, you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And so for us, Los Angeles is my Jerusalem. Oh. It's my home. Mm-hmm. It's my base. And so whatever we do, we start here. And that's Compton, that's Inglewood, that's Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely sounds like a promising land. That's for sure. <laughs> We're excited about it. Very, very excited. Very promising. Well, so tell us also about the solidarity event that you're hosting at your church on Sunday and what inspired that. The last few weeks have really grieved me, almost depressed me, but certainly grieved me. It started, I was out out of the country on vacation, and I came back about the time that there was the attack during uh, the Hanukkah celebration in New York. Yes, the attack inside a rabbi's home in Monson, New York. I I just couldn't believe that. It it was amazing. I later found out that it was perpetrated by a black guy. Mm -hmm. Okay, I had been on a tour. I took 88 people to Israel on a tour. And the friend of mine, a rabbi, was the lecturer to my group there in Tel Aviv. And almost casually, he mentioned in his lecture that the rising rate of attacks, I guess, and anti-Semitism and against Jewish communities was by black people. Mm. And my people went off. They freaked out because <laughs> we never heard that before. I mean, they attacked him. They said, where did you get that from? What's that about? It was very challenging, very intense, very emotional. Because I'd never heard that before. Interesting. They were skeptical or? Oh, my. Oh, more than skeptical. They doubted it. Okay. They doubted it. They said, that's not true. That's not true. Well, that's not true from the perspective of not us, not us in that room and not my church and not my community. Mm-hmm. But my fear, my fear, and I want to go on a limb and saying this, my fear is that those statistics have been muffled. Mm. Cover up is a strong word. In my community, we don't hear that. And I understand the politics of it, and I understand how delicate it is and, and you know, race baiting and all that. But it just it took me back. I was taken aback. Why would they muzzle that kind of statistic I, or information? I, I think someone, and maybe rightly so, I think someone might feel that it, it would fuel 
more and more distinction between the two groups. Mm, okay. When this is a time of bridge building and exactly, attempts to really exactly, exactly. And, revive you know, those uh, Yeah, today is Martin Luther King's birthday, and mm-hmm. the next couple of months is going to be Black History Month, and then Martin Luther King's the day he died, and so these next few months. I just feel that, you know, they're not new statistics. Somebody's been tracking them. Mm-hmm. I do find it in my own personal investigation of it, study of it, it seems to be, it seems to be, and I say that acknowledging that I am not by any means an expert, but it seems to be, for some reason, more prevalent in the New York area. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what that's about. I don't know whether they're hate groups. I don't know if there's a rise in groups that are anti-Semitic from the black community. I just don't know that. But I do know that that happened one week. And then a couple of weeks later, there was an attack in Texas of a white church, a white Christian church. Mm-hmm. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've had funerals of kids, young black kids. We just had a funeral of a six-year-old kid in our church last Sunday, uh, last Saturday, rather, who was killed. Oh. And so there's this rising climate of violence that just, again, not only concerned and grieved me, but really almost depressed me. And so... I just felt like let's do something. Let's start a conversation or let's let's show some kind of solidarity. And it was that kind of grief really that led to what's going to happen this coming Sunday with Christian leaders and Jewish leaders from across Los Angeles coming together to stand in solidarity with one another, to support one another, and to declare that somebody's got to do something. We don't have the answers. We don't mm-hmm. have it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know who has the answers. But I do know that there's a verse in the Bible where the Bible says that a friend is made for adversity. In other words, when you go through rough times, you want somebody to stand with you. Mm-hmm. And many people don't even know how civil rights movement, uh, how the Jewish community and black community were partners in that, and how Abraham Eshel stood with Martin Luther King. Many young kids today don't even know that history. Right. Well, there's been so many years since then where that was not the case. Right? It was not where, the case. And yeah. so so this chasm, this breach, I think it needs to be addressed. And it just started with, you know, Dr. Herschel, Rabbi Herschel, standing with Martin Luther King and bringing those two communities together. You mm-hmm. know, I, I saw the movie on uh, Selma and it grieved me to great lengths because when I saw that movie, that was a scene of Dr. King marching across, I think it was the Pettus Bridge. And in that scene, they had a Greek Orthodox priest holding arms with the person portraying Dr. King. And I knew that was wrong because it wasn't a Greek Orthodox. It was a Jew. It was Rabbi Heschel. Right, right. And someone made the decision to intentionally edit that out of that picture and put in a different character. Well, subtle things like that, from my perspective, are just sparks that fuel dissension and that distort history. Yeah, I have to go back and see that clip. That is such an interesting observation. When that movie was out, I was doing a series of lectures in Chicago and Detroit on Jewish and black Christian unity. Mm -hmm. And we were in Detroit, and the host had the picture of Dr. King and Rabbi Heschel at the entrance. Yeah, And it dawned on me, you know, this movie has been edited. This movie (laughs) changed, rewrote history. Interesting. Well, I'm curious, how has the Jewish community received the invitation to come to this solidarity event? And have they spoken up and said that somebody should address this kind of outbreak of violence that you're seeing? I work, I flow, and I function in relationships. Mm -hmm. And by the grace of God, we, meaning our individual congregation, we have had relationships with many, many, many of Jewish congregations here in the city for years. Wilshire Boulevard Temple, Stephen S. Wise Temple, Young Israel Temple, Synagogue. And so 
I simply called on my friends. I simply call on my friends. And, mm-hmm. and I've done similar kinds of events, especially during Black History Month. I've done that on their side of town. Mm-hmm. But in my experience, there's never been an invitation or a gathering on my side of town. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you something. Several years ago, there was a group of evangelical Christians who were, after the riots, many years ago, after the riots in Los Angeles, were trying to build bridges between the Jewish community and black community and white community and black community. And so I had a Jewish friend of mine, and I brought my choir. Actually, he invited me to come to his temple and bring my choir and sing and that kind of thing. I said, now, when will you guys come to my church? (laughs) And with tears in his eyes, he said, man, my people won't come. I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't think my people will come to that side of town. I said, so let's don't do it then. Don't have my people come, and it's not going to be reciprocal. And so that kind of tension has existed, and yet God has allowed us to have relationships and friendships that cross religious lines and cross racial lines. And so the people who are coming on Sunday basically are friends. They're friends. And we've done similar things like this before, but never in Inglewood, never in South Central Los Angeles. And they've been very, very responsive. As a matter of fact, I told a friend of mine yesterday, I said, I hope they don't outnumber us because we... Our church seats about 1,800 people, and our congregation is very excited about it, and other churches and black churches, and actually black churches, white churches from the Korean community, Hispanic community are all gathering this Sunday just to pray. We're not marching, we're not anything, but we're just gathering to support one another and to make a statement that this kind of violence and this kind of, we call it demonic activity, has got to cease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you have a wonderful turnout. I hope people are spilling out of your doors. <laughs> uh, and I really am so grateful to you for coming on this show to share the Ulmer Institute as well as talk about this event and this very sensitive, difficult issue. It really is. And I really appreciate you having me on. I'm honored to be on your program. Thank you so much, Bishop. Thank you now. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us this week at our Shabbat table is Joshua Davidovich, a deputy editor at the Times of Israel. Josh, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Hey, guys. This week at my Shabbat table, I'm going to be talking about football, which, to be honest, is what I talk about pretty much every week this time of year. (laughs) Now, there's not much Jewish about football unless you want to talk about how many teams have Jewish owners, which I don't. (laughs) But Sunday is going to see the rare game where two teams will face off for a conference championship with Jewish starters, and neither of them is named Julian Edelman. No matter who wins the AFC championship game, a Jewish player is going to be in the Super Bowl. Not only are both Kansas City Chiefs right tackle Mitchell Schwartz and Tennessee Titans kicker Greg Joseph both Jewish, but I think there's something very Jewish about what got them there. I'll start with Mitchell who together with his now-retired brother Jeff made up the first pair of Jewish brothers to both play in the NFL since 1923, just to give an idea of how often you find Jewish players on the gridiron. Up until a single play in November when he had to have an injury checked out, Mitchell had never missed a single snap in eight years of brutal NFL play. It was an insane streak, likely second only to his former teammate Joe Thomas. Stats for that kind of thing aren't kept by everyone, so it's hard to know for sure. But you can't really talk about sticking to something without thinking of the longevity of the Jewish people and the long arc of history. All right, fine. That's a bit of a stretch. But how about this? 
Up until a few weeks ago, Greg Joseph was looking forward to a career in the second-rate XFL after being picked up and dropped by teams more times than a greased-up pigskin. Now the Jewish day school kid from Boca is the starting kicker for the NFL's Titans. And thanks to his team slaying a couple of Goliaths, he's a win away from playing in the biggest game in the world. That resilience, that ability to be down but never out, that's our heritage in a nutshell. Our story is one of setbacks ad infinitum. Yet against all odds, here we are. Not to compare being cut by a team to the Holocaust, but just 75 years ago, all four of my grandparents were in the camps, seeing their families and communities annihilated. 50 years ago, my dad was stuck in the Soviet Union, sneaking Samis out of Zionist literature. Yeah, things are bad now, too. Swastikas are being spray-painted, Jews are being beaten up and brutally attacked. Iran wants to wipe us out. But as history shows, it could be a lot worse. And as Greg Joseph can tell you, it can always get better. That's a lesson I take to heart, and I hope my kids do, too, as a long-suffering fan of the Cleveland Browns and someone who has passed <laughs> that terrifying tradition on to his poor Israeli children. Few teams in any sport have been as dysfunctional and piss-poor for as long as the Browns, for whom both Joseph and Schwartz used to play, by the way. But I still watch every game, and I'm already getting excited for whatever train wrecks next season will bring. For the same reason, I'm raising my kids to be proud Jews in a world where I know doing so can become a threat at any time. Because we always need to believe that things will get better, that we're not only the sum of our past, but also the sum of our potential, of what we could be. If a Jewish kid from South Florida who got kicked around by the NFL can make it a win away from the Super Bowl, then maybe, just maybe, the Browns can too. Mm. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Manya, what are you going to be talking about at your Shabbat table? Oh, I'm going to be talking about how relieved I am that Julian Edelman isn't in the Super Bowl. <laughs> Personally, I thought it was so refreshing to see the teams that are going to be uh, playing in these championship games that are coming up and not see the Patriots. I know I'm offending all of our Boston listeners, and I'm so sorry, but that is I'm just how I feel. <laughs> but no, we, we will talk a little bit about football, I'm sure, but we'll also be talking about a more serious issue closer to home. I live in a smaller, frankly more affordable town next door to Montclair, New Jersey, which is often hailed as a bastion of diversity and inclusion, but honestly has a lot of issues when it comes to segregation, integration, gentrification, discrimination, oh, you name the Asian, a pocket of Montclair is probably dealing with it. But right now, they're confronting anti-Semitism, but they're confronting it, and by they, I mean the Jewish community and those accused of making hateful remarks about them, in a rather constructive way. Toward the end of last year, several swastikas were discovered at Montclair High School. And then, on December 30th, a retired educator and civil rights activist at a town meeting referred to the Orthodox Jewish community in Lakewood, New Jersey, and the Hasidic community in Jersey City, well, using rather unfortunate language, deeply offending a rabbi and others in the audience. In those remarks, which accused the Jewish communities of controlling city council and the school boards of those towns, the speaker, James Harris, who's chair of the state NAACP's Education Committee and chair of the New Jersey Association of Black Educators, lamented that people are often quick to label anything that's critical of Jews as anti-Semitic. But facts are facts, he said. Leaving the door open for constructive dialogue, AJC tweeted, These outrageous comments are entirely inconsistent with the NAACP that has been our partner in advancing black Jewish relations for decades. A week later, Harris was suspended from serving as head of the local NAACP's education committee. He also issued an apology, saying he had intended at that meeting to speak more constructively about gentrification, one of those difficult Asians that I mentioned facing Montclair. Now, Montclair is a town with a population of only 40,000, 
but it's seen its percentage of African-Americans shrink from 27 percent to 24 percent over the last decade. But Harris did more than just offer an apology. He initiated a meeting with the rabbi who he'd offended and seven other spiritual leaders in the Jewish community. They responded graciously, issuing a statement that acknowledged Harris's meaningful and honest effort to repair the damage he'd done. Almost all of those rabbis and cantors also signed the second statement, along with four African-American clergy members. Mayor Robert Jackson, who himself is African-American, had brought the two groups together, and their statement pledged a unified effort to combat all forms of hatred, including anti-Semitism. Oh, but it went further. We will advocate for educational and social programs, the statement said. We will advocate for the weak, the poor, and the marginalized in this town. And the statement said they would push for more affordable housing in Montclair, the subject that Harris said he had meant to focus on in the first place. Now, I am by no means excusing James Harris's remarks. They were careless. They were emotional. But these are tense times. They're also opportunities. Opportunities to connect talk through very difficult and sensitive issues for both communities, and become allies for each other on the issues that matter to each other, not just those they share. Offline conversations are vital to muddling through these times. Not Twitter, not Facebook chatter, and that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table face-to-face. Sefi, what about you? Well, thank you, Manya. Every now and then I like to skim the archive section of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency's website, and now I'm wondering if that might be the nerdiest sentence ever uttered on an episode of People of the Pod. Nevertheless, uh, the Jewish Wire Service will put interesting or relevant news pieces from its history up at the bottom of the homepage. And with Martin Luther King Day approaching, the folks at JTA are obviously thinking about the history of Black-Jewish relations. Here's a fascinating news clipping from 1969. The headline goes, quote, NAACP wraps Nixon's failure to nominate Jew to fill Supreme Court vacancies. And it continues. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People said today that its opposition to the appointment of federal judge Clement F. Hainsworth Jr. to the United States Supreme Court was based in part on President Nixon's apparent break with the tradition of naming at least one American Jew to the highest court in the land. The NAACP statement said that in addition to Judge Hainsworth's, quote, lamentable record in civil rights matters, it was objecting to the, quote, refusal of the president of the United States to follow the tradition of his eminent predecessors, beginning with the late Woodrow Wilson, of recognizing the vast political and social contributions, particularly with respect to our legal institutions made by Jewish Americans. It continues. To recite the names of Justices Brandeis, Cardozo, Frankfurter, Goldberg, and Fortas is to recount major developments and contributions to the legal and political structure of the United States over the past half century. Skipping ahead a little bit, we fear or at least we suspect that this cavalier treatment of a group of persons who have been in the forefront of the fight for protection of the rights of all Americans is thought to be justified because... After too long a denial, a Negro American has been appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States. If this be the political reasoning, we refuse to accept it. We refuse to permit such cynical politics to require us to compete with our fellow defenders of the rights of all people for a place on the Supreme Court of the United States. 
Judge Hainsworth was not confirmed by the Senate. That seat was filled instead by Harry Blackman, who, though appointed by one of the most conservative presidents in U.S. history, would go on to become one of the most liberal justices in the history of the court. He is perhaps most famous for authoring the decision in the Roe v. Wade case. The court would be without a Jewish justice, however, until 1993, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was nominated by President Clinton. Today, she is joined by fellow members of the tribe, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan. You might not be surprised to learn that history comes up often at my Shabbat table. And as we prepare to honor the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. this weekend, I'll be talking about this small bit of our history. Some in the Jewish community have a tendency to romanticize black Jewish history, while others overly downplay it. There is no one truth here. There are just lots of moments of truth that can add up to one story or another. This is one of those moments, and it's one of the things I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 